Thank you for joining us for session two, A Father and His Children. Several years ago, my daughter-in-law Bailey's two dear mom friends moved away close in time to one another. And I was feeling really badly for her and thought, I wanna do something for her. I know, I'll get her flowers. And then I thought, and they'll be anonymous so that when she finds them, she'll know, oh, somebody still loves me here. So I get the flowers, I drive to their house, and I realize as I'm approaching their house that I didn't think through the execution of the plan very well because there's no way to drop the flowers off without someone seeing me if they're at all in the front half of their house. So as I'm driving up, I notice that in the driveway is Matt's car, a friend. So I go around the corner, I text Matt, and say, can you read this privately? He texts me back a, about a minute later and says, what's up? So I explained to him what's going on. He says, give me five minutes, I'll get everybody out to the back of the house. So five minutes, drop the flowers, go home. That night, I got a text from Matt that said she loved them. So all was well. Now fast forward to just this past summer. In the month of June, we found out that Taylor and Bailey and our only three grandchildren would be moving from the Chicago area to another state. And it was in the month of July that I was having a no good, very bad day, struggling with this loss. And I was praying, I was crying and praying to God. And I reminded God of what I had done for Bailey. And I told him, I said, this is not my two best friends. This is my one and only son, my one daughter-in-law, and our only three grandchildren. Who's going to bring me flowers? That's not my proudest prayer moment. Let's pray together now. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the gift of your word and your spirit who we are trusting to teach us. Even now, we open ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Hannah Whithall Smith's autobiography, The Unselfishness of God, she says this, everything in your spiritual life depends on the sort of God you worship because the character of the worshiper will always be molded by the character of what he worships. And this week we looked at God our Father in this first chapter of Isaiah. What came to your mind when I say Father? You know, we bring all of who we are all that we've experienced in our own lives to words that we hear. And that can be helpful, and it can also be not so helpful at times. It can lead to deeper understandings, but it can also lead to miscommunications. When you hear Father, you have other words and images from a variety of sources, mainly from your own background, your own Father. And where else might your mind have made associations? TV shows, movies, books, entertainment, culture. I'm dating myself a little bit here, but from our day, our generation, maybe you thought of Father Knows Best, or My Three Sons, or Leave It to Beaver with Ward Cleaver, or The Brady Bunch. Father, think about it. It's the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. It's how Jesus taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven. It's the primary relationship between Christ and his followers, father and child. The tendency to bring our experience, our knowledge, our life with our earthly father into the understanding of our heavenly father can be risky in understanding who God the Father is. 
In Lies Women Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free, it's a book by Nancy Lee DeMoss. She says this, What we believe about God is foundational to our whole belief system. If we have wrong thinking about God, we will have wrong thinking about everything else. What we believe about God determines the way we live. She then lists several lies. One of the lies is, God is just like my father. Now, for some, this is a less painful and maybe more accurate sentence than it is for others. For me versus Ken, my father was a godly man who loved the Lord and served him and loved his family. He was chairman of the deacons, head of the Sunday school board, the church coach for the softball league and for the basketball team. We came to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night visitation, Wednesday night prayer service. Compare this with Ken who never knew his father. His father left his family when Ken was still in the womb and claimed him illegitimate. We have never met Ken's father. We don't know if he's alive or dead to this day. There's a big difference there. But even for me, who did have a godly father, my father was not perfect. He was just human. So even if you have a wonderful godly father that is coming into your view of God as father, you need to know that God is infinitely more wise and loving than any earthly father could ever be. Hebrews 12, 9 and 10 give us this truth in just one area of fathering discipline. Truth is, God is not like any man or woman you have ever known or heard about. Jeremiah 10, 6 and 7 says, Lord, there's no one like you, for you are great, and your name is full of power. Who would not fear you, O King of nations? That title belongs to you alone. Among all the wise people of the earth and in all the kingdoms of the world, there is no one like you. So what now what? How do we know this one who is like no other, God the Father? For some reason, this summer, I began receiving People magazine. I... I didn't order it, and I still have never paid for a single issue. But I got this People magazine. It says Harry and Meghan, their side of the story. And then I've got this, uh, this one, our wild, wonderful family. The couple together, 25 years, and their kids get candid about the laughter and love that keeps their family strong. Kelly Ripa and Mark Consuelos. Now, if I told you that I know... I know Kelly Ripa and Mark Consuelos, and all I had done was read about them, you would call me crazy because knowing about someone and knowing someone, they are not the same. But let's start with about. Let's start with how do I know about God, about who God is. God is exactly who he has revealed himself to be in his written word and in his living word because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, when I read about these magazines, about these people in People Magazine, to be honest, I don't know if this is the truth about them or not. It says it's the truth, but I don't really know. How do I know the truth about God the Father? His written word, listen to 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. I'll read just 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. Regarding the book, we are specifically studying Isaiah. Listen to what in the New Testament, 2 Peter 1 has to say about the prophets. 
Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. And the written word of God points us to the living word of God, Jesus. In John 5, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. His living word, Jesus, then points us back to God, the very character of God. In Hebrews 1, the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. In John 14, Jesus is speaking and he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So both the written and the living word tell us the truth about God and they also clearly show me how I can be in relationship with God as my Father. In other words, not just how I can know about God, but how I can know God. How do I know God the Father? The relationship of God as my Father is initiated by Him. John 3.16 tells us that, that because He loved us, He sent His Son. Jesus was born as a baby, lived a perfect sinless life, and yet chose to sacrifice His life on the cross for me and for my sins, was raised back to life three days later because He is fully God and fully man. Listen to Romans 4. For our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. 1 John 3 tells us, see how very much our Father loves us for he calls us his children. We continue to learn about who God is. How do we come to know Him better? Well, through the spiritual disciplines, one of which is Bible study, what we're doing right here, right now, studying the book of Isaiah. And through this time that we'll have together, Isaiah will give us several images of who God is. Again, today, God as Father. What do I know of God the Father through His Word? Again, Hannah Whittall Smith in a different book called God is Enough, she says this, Discomfort and unrest are impossible to souls who come to know that God is their father. What a good earthly father would not do, God who is our father would not do either. And what a good father ought to do, God who is our father is absolutely sure to do. Christ has declared to us the name of the father in order that we may discover that the father loves us as he loves his son. If we believe this, could we ever have an anxious or rebellious thought again? Would we not believe in every conceivable circumstance that the divine Father would care for us in the best possible way and meet our every need? So what do I know of God the Father through His Word? As a basis, a jumping off point, let's look again at the parable that we studied in day three, often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, found in Luke 15, verses 11 through 31. The context here, to whom is Jesus speaking? There's actually two groups involved here. One are the notorious sinners, the tax collectors. The second group, 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The parable begins, a man has two sons. There's a younger son and there's an elder son. Why is he telling the story? Well, group number two, the religious people are actually put out by Jesus in the way that he's treating group number one, quote, associating with such despicable people. He was even eating with them, which in that culture in that day was a sign of acceptance. So Jesus answers the Pharisees and the teachers of the law's complaint about his fraternization with the sinners by telling three parables, actually. The first is about the lost sheep. A shepherd goes in search of the sheep, finds him, and there's rejoicing. And then there's the lost coin. A woman searches for the lost coin. She finds it, and there is rejoicing. And the third parable is the lost son. I think it would be more appropriate to say the lost sons, plural. But this time the father doesn't go out. The father lets the son go. No one goes out searching. The son returns on his own. There is rejoicing, but with one exception the elder son. There is not rejoicing, and now the father does go out and search for the elder son. We don't know the final answer. It's a cliffhanger. What's the point of the parable? Well, I think the point of the parable is expressed best in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. The context, this is a real life story with real life people. You might know the song about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed his way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, come down from there, for I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house today. Verse 7 says, But the crowds were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. Zach talks to Jesus about his desire to make things right, restitution with the people that he had cheated as their tax collector. And Jesus addresses the crowd and affirms the salvation of Zach. And then is when we get verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. This is who God is, the seeker and saver of the lost, the Savior we all so desperately need. This third parable in the trilogy has some bonuses for us in our understanding of the father and of the two sons. Again, the parable begins, a man had two sons. Not there were two sons. What if the point is not that the sinner can come home, which he certainly can, a sinner can come home, but at best that's only half the parable. There's another son, remember the two groups? There's a correlation, the younger son with the wayward sinners, the tax collectors, and other notorious sinners. The elder son, the religious people, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. What's the climax of the parable? Hint, it is not the return of the wayward son. Why? Well, because if it was, the parable would end there, or at least with the wrap-up sent sentence. But that's not how the parable ends. The climax of the parable is the cliffhanger the decision that's left to the elder son. So this parable often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son would make more sense to be called the parable of the two sons. But even better, consider the definition of prodigal. The origin of prodigal is from the Latin P-R-O-D-I-G-U-S, meaning lavish. I looked up the definition. Spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Having or giving something on a lavish scale. Now I can see why the parable is referenced as the younger son's behavior as he squandered his inheritance, right? But consider if prodigal was the adjective describing the father. 
one who spends resources freely, extravagantly. The father lavishes both sons with his love, his affection, his grace, his forgiveness. Perhaps the better title might be the parable of the man with two sons or the parable of the prodigal father. Tim Keller actually wrote a book. It's a small book, The Prodigal God. I read it years ago and enjoyed reading it again this summer. Just one quote from his book. Jesus is showing us the God of great expenditure, who if nothing, if not prodigal toward us, his children. God's reckless grace is our greatest hope, a life-changing experience. Well, what can we learn of our Father God from the parable recorded in Luke? I want to look at seven truths with support from the Old Testament and New Testament. Quick summary, the younger brother has asked for his inheritance before the father has passed away. The father is still living. Traditionally, the older son would get two-thirds, the younger son would get one-third. Most of the holdings of an inheritance would be in land back in that day. And so that would mean that it wasn't just a quick trip to the bank or the ATM or Venmo or Apple Pay. Assets had to be sold to make this happen. So we're not sure how much time has passed, but the father does give the son his request and gives him his inheritance. The father, the father literally tears his life apart for the love of his son. Lesson number one, God our Father is loving. The father initiates love to both of his sons. The father comes out to each son and expresses love to them in order to bring the sons back to himself. He doesn't wait when his younger son returns. He runs and kisses him before his son can even confess. It's not the repentance that causes the father's love. The father loves him no matter what he's done or no matter what he's about to do or say or even his proposal. The father just loves him. The father also initiates love to the older son as he seeks him out, leaves the party and seeks out the elder son. God is a loving father. He is love, loving me unconditionally and eternally. First John 4, 8 says, but anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. Romans 5 tells us that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And Romans 8 assures us that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Listen to these descriptions of our prodigal God in regard to his extravagantly, lavishly loving us. This is God speaking in Exodus 20. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. What a prodigal God we have who extravagantly lavishes his love on us. Two, God our Father is compassionate and forgiving. We see this in the Father's response to both of his son's rebellion against him. In addition to the parable, we see this in God our Father in his own description of himself, Exodus 34. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Three, God our Father has no favorites. A man has two sons. The father in the parable loves both of his sons. He wants a relationship with both of his sons. Look at the verbs because we know love does. The father runs. The father begs. God has no favorites. 1 Peter 1.17 says, And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. Number four. God, our Father's discipline is perfect. Sometimes God's discipline is the outworking of our natural consequences to the sinful, rebellious choices that we make. This is how God handled the younger son. 
There's no reasoning, no explaining, reprimanding the son for his foolish, selfish request. The father simply complies and the son takes the money and runs. Now the elder son, the father handles him differently. The father does talk with the elder son. He explains, in essence, inviting him back into fellowship to join in the celebration. You can look at verse 31 and 32 to see that again. Our Heavenly Father's discipline is perfect, always good for us. Proverbs 3.12 in the Old Testament tells us that. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 12.9 and 10 says, Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the disciplines of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. Five, God our Father cares for his children. The father of the two sons cares about and cares for both of his children. Notice when the younger son returns. He runs, embraces him, kisses him, and then the son speaks. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But the son doesn't get to finish. He had a whole proposal he was going to make to the father. And the father interrupts him and speaks to the servants and says, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. We see the father running out to meet him. He runs out immediately going beyond to meet his needs. Now he probably does need clean clothes and shoes. Remember he's been feeding pigs and he's been walking back home on dusty roads. What does the father do? He tells the servants, bring the finest robe. Who has the finest robe? Whose robe was the servant going to bring back to put on the son? The father's. And then not just the robe, but sandals and a ring. And not just a meal, but the fattened calf. And not just a meal, but a celebration. And look how he cares for the elder son. He leaves the celebration, goes out, seeks out the son. Our Heavenly Father cares for us when we return and all along the way. Listen in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 1. And you saw how the Lord your God cared for you all along the way as you traveled through the wilderness, just as a father cares for his child. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. Say that to yourself sometime today. God cares about me. If the Spirit does not remind you throughout your day today, I'm going to ask that when you go to bed tonight, with your eyes still open, your head on the pillow, but your eyes still open, say out loud, God cares about me. What a beautiful way to fall asleep, even more so, how wonderful would it be if we lived our waking hours in the full truth of that. Change it to a prayer and say, God, you care about me. Number six, God our Father is extravagantly generous. We see this in the parable, how the Father cares for his sons. We just talked about how he goes beyond in meeting the physical needs. But there is actually more than just the physical needs. The Father is extravagantly generous with his grace, his forgiveness, his love, and affection. God, our prodigal Father, is extravagantly generous. 
Matthew 7, Jesus is speaking and he says, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? James 1 tells us whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. Psalm 34:10 tells us those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Consider not just the physical, but just one other aspect, grace. God is extravagantly generous with his grace. Paul explains the enormity of God's grace to cover our sin in Romans 5 when he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Here is the seventh truth about God from this parable, but could also be the summation of all of them. God, our Father, is good. God is good. Psalm 119, you are good and do only good. Teach me your decrees. Psalm 106, 1, praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love endures forever. God is not only good, God stores up his goodness. Why? Why would God store up his goodness? To lavish it on his children. Listen to Psalm 31. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. That's our prodigal God. The father invites each of the sons, the younger and the elder, to come into the feast of his love. In July, in the midst of my pity party prayer, my lament, my fussing to God, and honestly, my fussing at God, who's going to bring me flowers? He could have, by every right, scolded me, reprimanded me, disciplined me, said something like, Rhonda, seriously, after all we've been through, you don't trust me? Where is your faith? Or he could have left me alone completely and told the angels, you know, just let her be for a while. She just needs a timeout. She'll get it together. What did my good, good father do? While it is true that I did remember the goodness of the Lord and I put my big girl panties on and I got on with the day, my good, good father was not through. He was not finished. Two days later, I got a text from a friend who had no idea of my initial anonymous gift two year, several years prior. She certainly had no idea of my pitiful prayer inquiring of God who's going to bring me flowers. Her text said, we dropped off something for you. She and her husband had come by and because of COVID, they left something for me. I went outside and there was a dozen yellow roses and a card. The sweetness of Jesus, the goodness of God, the prompting of the Holy Spirit to a friend who he knew would obey, the extravagance of compassion and grace and mercy and care and love of my prodigal heavenly father. He sent me flowers and not just flowers. My love language is words of affirmation. I received one of the kindest cards I've ever received in all my life. I burst into tears when I saw the flowers and read the card and read the card again. I couldn't even call her. I was crying so hard I knew she wouldn't be able to understand me. I texted her, there is no way you could know what your card and flowers mean to me. You are the sweetness of Jesus to me. I went on and explained to her the backstory of the several years ago and my cry out to God, as embarrassing it was to admit that to my friend. I wanted her to understand how the God of the universe used her mightily to minister grace and mercy to this spoiled child for his glory. Oh, what a good, good father. What a prodigal heavenly father who lavishes himself on us. In our text from Isaiah this week, in the very first chapter of Isaiah, what is the reason for the rebellion of God's children, of Israel's rebellion? God tells us, Isaiah 1, 
This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner and a donkey recognizes its master's care, but Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. God is their father and they do not know him as such and they do not understand. May this not be true of me and of you. Recognize your father God's care for you. Know him as your good, good father. Are you familiar with that song? You're a good, good father. It's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. The writers of that song are Pat Barrett and Tony Brown. And Tony was leading worship in a house church of a little less than 50 people. And a young lady that was struggling with cancer and having a very difficult time battling it requested prayer again. And as the group gathered around her to pray, Tony thought of this chorus and just began singing, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And fairly soon, the woman joined in. And then all of the people joined in. They sang this song for about an hour. And it soon developed into the full song we know today. And it actually became that gathering's weekly liturgy. Tony said this, I find it amazing that something as simple as a spontaneous song can unlock the most important ideas about who God is. I never knew my father, and I didn't meet my mother until I was 12. So when I came to Christ, I felt like I had a father for the first time, and he was so good. You know, whatever came to your mind when I said father, perhaps your earthly father, maybe he was godly, maybe he wasn't. Maybe you never knew your father like Ken or like Tony. Here is the truth. Your heavenly father is a good, good father. Let's pray together. Father, you are a good, good father. That's who you are. Thank you for your lavish, extravagant, over-the-top, immeasurable, prodigal love for me, for us. What a gift. Thank you. Amen.